Hello and welcome to Insurance Tomorrow, a podcast brought to you by me, Nick Hewer, and Allianz. Our job in this series is to explore the global trends that will affect and shape businesses in the years to come. If you enjoy the programme, please do subscribe on your podcast app and leave us a review. You can also listen back to the previous episodes. Today's episode looks at the increasing popularity of drones. We'll look at the different sectors that can benefit from drone technology and we'll ask how the insurance industry is adapting as ownership grows. A report released earlier this year by PwC estimates there will be more than 76,000 drones in use across UK skies by 2030. They estimate there will be nearly 630,000 people working in the drone economy, with the technology having the potential to increase UK GDP by £42 billion, or 2%, in 12 years. They're already being used in many sectors, including farming, the emergency services and the insurance industry, but their cost also means they are affordable to the general public too. And as the technology develops and more people use them, the insurance requirements change. Joining me today to discuss all this are Tom Chamberlain, Underwriting Manager in Aerospace and General Aviation at Allianz Global Corporate and Speciality. Tom Avery, Underwriter in General Aviation and Aerospace at Allianz Global Corporate and Speciality. And joining them, we have James Dunthorne, Standards Director at RPAS UK, that's the Association of Remotely Piloted Aircraft Systems UK. And finally, we welcome Elaine White. She's a Drones Lead at PWC. So let's start with you, Tom. We think about drones being something that's just arrived. What's the history? Where do they come from? Uh, well, I mean, they haven't just arrived. Drones have been around for oh, almost 100 years. Um, they've started off being used um, in the military. Um, in World War One. they tested out the first ever drone. I think before that they were using uh, balloons and things and you know, tethered stuff. But uh, the, first, the first proper remotely piloted drone uh, was coming out of World War One, which they wanted to use for target practice. Um, that was never actually used, but uh, come the Second World War, there was one called the Queen Bee, uh, and this was effectively a light aircraft which uh, had been uh, instead of the pilot had remote controls put in it uh, and yeah was was flown up and used by the RAF for for target practice so the military really have been using drones for uh, all these years as time's gone on Vietnam War the technology's obviously improved dramatically um, up until now when obviously they're using drones for remote surveillance and uh, the US I think now are training more drone pilots than they are actual pilots I think it's about two to one now that they're training these remotely piloted ones and then I think about 10-12 years ago they really started uh, uh, to be commercially viable um, and people started creating them in labs uh, for their own pleasure and purposes um, as technology improved mobile phones were started to be married with uh, radio controlled sort of airplanes and I think that's where the first sort of recreational types of drone uh, were started. Okay and James you got your fingers into drone technology in a big way. Yeah so uh, back in 2011 drones were at that stage not really known in the wider community um, people you know you wouldn't see them on the news you wouldn't see them anywhere but um, there was a lot of people doing work on the electronics side of things so programming uh, designing flight controllers designing algorithms um, which can be used in sort of more complex environments at sort of lower altitudes 
um, you know, navigating around uh, obstacles and all of these kinds of things. Um, and so that's there was a project called DIY Drones, which was very, very popular um, a website called DIY Drones. And, and they started making open source flight controllers. Um, and there was a huge community sort of erupted from there. Um, and that was even before sort of DJI was around. Uh, DJI are now sort of the, the leaders with an 80% market share. Mm. Um, and uh, and then DJI kind of saw that there was a, a community building um, and then launched sort of their first, their first product. But around this table, we've got three guys who all fly drones. What's the appeal? Tony, why do people love them so much? I love a gadget, so an opportunity to, to fly a drone, which is, you know... Um, something I've never had the opportunity to do before um, was fantastic for me. I literally just fly for pleasure purposes, so my son and I will will go over the park and, and buzz the drone around. But I think it gives you a complete different um, perspective as to what the world looks like from the sky. You know, If you're fortunate enough to be a pilot and you can fly, you can see what most people don't see on the ground. So for me, that was the, the biggest thing, was just to see you know, the world in a different light. Sport and recreational activities and drones. Mm-hmm. Are you getting involved in this? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So one of the really quite interesting things uh, we've done as Alliance is um, invest in the Drone Racing League. So this is a brand new sport, although I think it's been around now for, for a couple of years. And these are 100 mile per hour drones, which you are flying first person view. So you, you have your goggles on and you're effectively flying these uh, these drones extremely fast through obstacle courses. Um, it's an incredible feat to see um, actually trying to put on a pair of these goggles and follow around what they're doing. These things are going so fast that you can barely keep up. And if you're not sta- if you're not sitting down, you tend to fall over when they flip them over and uh, go around the course. Um, and you can you can view this. It's on Sky at the moment, I think, as well. Uh, and it's it's a real interesting sport. And a lot of these guys who who are doing this are ex sportsmen from uh, from other fields. So maybe they've had an injury or something and can no longer do the sport they were doing. You get a lot of guys who are doing racing, car racing, and uh, motorbike racing who maybe can't continue that and have now switched to this more sort of I don't want to call it online type of thing, but it's more more sort of virtual uh, racing with these drones. But we're here to talk about business. And Elaine, I know that you've looked into this pretty deeply. And amazingly, I was amazed that you're saying that by 2030, in your report for PwC, that um, the drone economy will employ something like, was it 630,000 people, something like 76,000 drones buzzing around doing important things, generating something like 42 billion. Tell us about the potential for business. Uh, certainly, Nick. So the 42 billion uh, would represent about 2% of GDP by 2030, which seems quite a significant figure as we sit here right now. But when you consider that's the multiplier effect of the impact of drones and the actual drone value chain excel- itself is more than just the operator flying a drone. It's the technology behind the sensor. The drone itself, as uh, you've already said, Tony, is just a way to get height in the sky. Actually, the really clever bit is the quality of the data that you collect from that height in the sky, and that's the sensor. And then what do you do with that data? It in itself is not uh, ready to interpret by a business. So you do need to do some analysis on that data. And then you need to take that data into the business to interpret it and get the business insight. So if you unpack what that value chain looks like, you've got the hardware, you've got um, the operator, you've got all the support structure you need to be able to operate drones from regulators to insurance to assurance uh, to trainers. 
um, all the way through to how you then analyze that data, whether you apply basic data analytics on it, whether you advance into machine learning and artificial intelligence and so on and so forth. So 630,000 people is a great deal of people, but when you expand that that could be the person that comes and inspects your roof and rather than putting scaffolding up, they pop a little drone out to go and take a look all the way through to the engineering company who's responsible for maintaining maintaining an oil and gas platform. Then you can see the extremes of operating drones, how many people could be within that drone economy. And at the moment, what would you say is the most interesting or perhaps beneficial use of drones in business at the moment? So um, if I take it to industry, there are there's one particular industry that's really quite mature in its use of drones right now, and that's the film industry. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of the Blue Planet um, series last year. And right at the end, you've got that wonderful five minutes where you can see how the images were captured. And in some of those instances, they use drones. And why did they use drones? Because drones were relatively inexpensive. They're agile. And the operator could sit and wait and wait. And two, three months later, when the SEALs arrived in the bay, they could deploy that drone and they got that aerial view that Tony spoke about. And we, the viewers, got a completely fresh perspective on how those creatures live within their local habitat. Now, if you take that over to a business, then what you can use a drone for is to get that height of the eye and to be able to truly understand what's going on within your portfolio, whether that be um, an oil and gas platform I touched on before, utilities, road network, um, expansive real estate, the condition of roofs. There's so many different um, use cases that can be explored. I think, I think basically where we were seeing helicopters being deployed in the past, now, now people are using drones. It's much safer. It's much cheaper. Um, wind turbine inspections can be done at 20, 30 metres away by a drone, which would have taken either some guys up on scaffolding uh, an entire day to inspect one or a guy in a helicopter having to fly remarkably close, um, which, which can be very dangerous. Um, so wherever we were having these sort of helicopter operations before, now you can use a drone. Um, and and we're seeing this all over the place. So um, Japan, for instance, are using uh, drones for crop spraying. Uh, I think about 40, 50 percent now of the crop spraying for rice fields are done by a little helicopter yeah, yeah, drone. Yeah. You can set these off. It flies a pattern over the field, does the crop spraying, lands, all safe, all fine uh, and no hazard to life. Um, and, and so so you can... I mean, they've been used all over the place for, for weird and wonderful things. You mentioned the Blue Planet. Um, they're using drones now to uh, sort of monitor whale populations. So there's this one called the Snot Bot. Um, and it's basically exactly what it sounds. This thing will gather, it will fly over the top of a pod of whales. When they exhale and blow the, I want to say mucus and uh, water up, um, it collects a sample which is then streamed straight back to the boat and, and they can monitor the health of the whales. So it, it's it, honestly, if you, if you can imagine a use for it, it, it is being used. Um, people talk about Amazon and about the deliveries. Um, these sort of things are actually already happening. So there's a company called Zipline who do um, some great work in Africa uh, and they transport medical supplies via drone uh, to hard-to-reach places. So this fixed-wing drone sets off. It can fly for hundreds of miles, parachute down some like needed vaccines or blood samples or whatever it might be and fly back and then go and do another delivery. So all, all of these type of things, that this is where drones are being useful now, which commercially wouldn't have been viable for aircraft, yeah. helicopters I mean, or the, anything else. The cost of keep, keeping a helicopter in the air 
is horrendous compared with this. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the wind turbine uh, inspections alone, I think it's a fifth of the cost uh, to use a drone and a drone pilot than it is to uh, use a helicopter. Let's turn to the insurance industry. What are the risks and insurance issues in this burgeoning industry? Tony? I think um, probably rules and regulations, every country is different. So if you look at the UK, for instance, it's um, it's not compulsory for recreational users, um, so say my son and myself, to purchase insurance. Whereas if you take that a step further and you went to Germany, for instance, it is compulsory. So I think we need to do a lot um, with regards to that, I think people not adhering to those rules. I think the experience of the pilots in question, again, can cause issues. Mm-hmm. Um, claims, and again, it goes back to the data. There isn't enough data from an insurance perspective out there at the moment. You know, there hasn't been any sizable losses. Um, touch wood. Yeah. Um, I think that'll come in due course, but at the moment, it's, it's, it's the unknown, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, essentially, these, these are aviation risks. So um, the, the main dangers that you have with a light aircraft, you, you also have uh, with the drone, but with the added jeopardy that there's no pilot actually in the aircraft to sort of be sort of self-aware and self, self-preserving. So mid-air collisions, this is a, a kind of disaster scenario, which obviously no one wants to happen. Uh, everyone's heard of bird strikes uh, on commercial airlines, and in fact, engines are designed very well to be able to uh, take a few large birds into the engine before it actually stops. A drone strike is a very, very different thing, and there's been reports in the papers of drones flying near airports, which obviously they shouldn't be doing, and flying into flight paths of commercial airlines, which they definitely shouldn't be doing. So regulation, as you said, needs to be there for that. But that's there is a, there is a risk of mid-air collisions with these things, but then collisions on the ground. So um, you, you can Google... Um, near-miss skier Michael Herscher. Uh, and this is uh, some footage which was being filmed as part of the Winter Olympics. Um, Michael Herscher, world champion skier, on his downhill run. And you watch the video and he's minding his own business. And then with within inches behind him, this huge drone just drops out of the sky and smashes into the ground. Now, obviously, he's blissfully unaware of this and gets down to the bottom. But when he was then shown the footage, he, he was obviously quite angry about it all because what on earth was that drone doing right there? Why was it over the top of the course? And also, what on earth happened? I think the batteries had failed and it had fallen out of the sky and that was it. And literally half a second earlier, that would have been on his head. So collisions with uh, objects on the ground and people on the ground is a huge thing. You know, it, it would take a drone which has had a flyaway over a motorway smashing into a car there and causing a huge accident. You know, the, the, these are the types of scenarios we're, we're sort of considering when we think, okay, what could possibly happen? Um, obviously, the, dr- the drone that itself is, is, is broken, but that's a small part of, of, what, the, of what the insurance risk uh, could be. Um, so those are the two sort of main ones that, that we do worry about. But then it's, it's also what we've talked about with uh, privacy uh, and trespass yeah. and, and just noise and nuisance. So in farming industry, in lambing season and calving season, this could be a real big issue with drones flying around and spooking the cattle. And these can lead to claims as well. So it's interesting, actually, what Tony brought up um, about there's not enough data. Um, I sit on the BSI committee and drone industry action groups in the UK. Um, and both of those committees, they are looking, there's a huge demand at the moment for something called UTM, which is unmanned traffic management. And what we've got here is we're talking about building um, a data infrastructure for our country. We're talking about that not just necessarily for drones, but we're doing it for autonomous systems in general. So there's a huge move at the moment to to essentially create um, 
uh, a network so that things like uh, drones can plug into and, and an operator can see where all air traffic is um, so that they can avoid each other. Um, now, data like this, a data source like this, would allow um, insurance companies to be able to tap in and actually risk profile different operators, either on a flight-by-flight -flight basis, which I believe um, you're already doing with Flock, um, or or on a um, you know a, a paper a paper uh, month sort of kind of type basis. So. Um, with that data, you're going to end up with a lot more uh, better quality sort of assessments of, of risk when it comes to uh, to drone pilots. So I think technology is actually an answer for some of this. Okay, yeah, we completely agree. I mean, when we started out doing drone insurance, it was very much the traditional annual policy, same as you'd have for your car or your house or anything else. Uh, but we quickly realized that, I mean, firstly, from an efficiency point of view for us, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But also from a risk profiling point of view, it, it's not really capturing the information that we really want to, to know about the pilot. You know, where are they operating? Under what conditions? Uh, what's going on around them? Um, and this is what you mentioned uh, with Flock, who... Um, are a very clever data analytics company who um, came up with the idea that they could quantify um, uh, the risk profile of any drone flight. And so they designed this uh, safety app, effectively, which takes into account all this big data, so uses the technology thing you're talking about. So it looks at building density in the area. It looks at the weather data, which is hyper-local, so updated every 15 minutes within a square kilometer. Um, it looks at population density. So if you're flying uh, in rush hour or you're near a school, when it's uh, start or finishing time, obviously then your risk uh, increases if you're near major roads, things like that. And it brings all of this data together in real time and gives an assessment of the risk at that point. And what we've been able to do with them is provide insurance off the back of that. So if you're operating your drone in a risky area at times of high population density with lots of buildings around you, you're going to pay an appropriate premium. If, however, you're flying uh, in a field or along the coast, you know, at a sensible time, the weather's great, your premium will be much lower. And so it's great for the pilots because they get a better a risk assessment and it's actually about what they're doing right there. It's great for us because we can understand their risk a lot better. So, and and it's a, it's a safety thing as well. You know, people are aware that, oh, well, maybe if I fly in an hour, it's going to be much safer. Or, yeah, if, if I don't fly quite in this area, move down 100 yards, it's also going to be much safer. So th this, te this technology side is exactly what we're looking to do with this um, and this has sort of further applications in all in all kinds of other insurance as well it's not just drone insurance this this real time taking this big data sources which companies have been trying to do and, and use it to assess risk on the spot right there right then that this is going to be the key to lots of different types of insurance going forward. what's going to be the big big earner do you think by 2030 where's the real money going to be um we have predicted that the public sector will be the biggest uh, cost benefiter from the use of drones. But I think it's really important to understand um, that the regulation, um, as we are at the moment, does not allow us to deliver what we would see as needing to be delivered by 2030 to deliver um, those type of figures. Um, it's a sad fact of life that regulation tends to be born from disaster. Mm. And uh, it is our responsibility as a community to jointly ensure that we protect against that risk. And for our clients, what we see is this is introducing a new level of risk that they need to consider, um, that they need to, to assure against and insure against and all the other considerations from operating in the air. Um, and as a community, our aspiration is to make sure that we do advance the regulation in the spirit that allows the full operation without having to take us to that point of disaster.
There's an awful lot of pressure, I think, at the moment on individual operators as well. You know, we, we sort of talk about the regu- regulators, but there, I think there is a, quite a lot of um, individual responsibility to ensure that um, the, the pilots are operating respectfully. They're not, gonna, they're not doing stupid things. They are abiding by the, the laws. Um, and I think insurance, like we, we talked about um, in, in the past, about insurance actually almost having a, an, an equal role to regulation is actually do you need to regulate against um, everything or, or can you just say well you need to be insured and then it's up to the private industry to then decide uh, whether that risk is acceptable or not. And that's Tony's point about as a hobbyist he can go out and fly with his son and he doesn't need to consider insurance so you could foresee and I think it's it's hinted at in the news this morning at limiting children and the size of the drone they could fly and what that future drone bill could look like. I think it's hinted that we could actually get to a point in the future where if you're going to have a drone, you have to have insurance of some description. And if you're going to provide insurance, then you're going to want to make sure that the the system that is in place with that individual or that company that you're insuring is robust enough to uh, warrant the premium that you're going to set for it. Yeah, it's it's the, there's a whole thing around that, and and I think you're right about the uh, the recreational side that that does need to be pushed. I mean, again, in Germany they or, they already have this, so, so it does make a lot of sense. But it, it's it's also understanding the rules and regulations. You know, you said people do silly things. There was some really stunning footage on YouTube of a guy who had basically gone around the Shard in London, circling around it, getting some absolutely stunning footage of the building and London around it followed by about 100 comments from actually sensible drone pilots who say, you can't do this. You're not allowed to fly there. What on earth are you doing? And these guys are worried because they're, as a community, going to be the ones that get the blame for people doing these silly things, which is a couple of individuals who probably quite innocently are doing this without knowing the rules. So tell me this. What role does the broker have to play when it comes to advising their customers? And Tom? Yeah, I, I think they they need to be taking responsibility as much as they would for any kind of insurance that they're that they're selling to their clients is advising what it is they actually need. You know, a lot of these customers who are uh, bringing drones onto their um, onto their business into their workforce um, that that's not their main source of business. So these will be estate agents, surveyors, whatever else who are using the drones as an ancillary thing to to their main to their main uh, business and. Those operators don't necessarily know what insurance they need, and the brokers should be fully aware of exactly what they need. That they should be aware of what the regulations are around it, what they're using their drone for, um, and hence what insurance they need. I mean, the, the insurance at the end of the day is actually relatively simple. You are insuring the drone itself and pretty much anything it can crash into. So, from a sort of educational point of view, it's it's not a huge thing. But advising people that they actually need insurance in the first place is is a kind of key. Now, most commercial operators should know this because they'll have gone through their training and they'll be aware that they need to have insurance in place to even get permission to fly. So there is already an awareness from a customer's point of view about what they need. But then it's up to the broker to say, okay, well, if you're using it for this purpose in these areas, here are the limits that you require. You know, if you're just using it very infrequently in low-risk areas, a million liability limit is is more than enough. But if you are actually using it for filming in populated areas or or whatever else it might be, you might need 10 million or even more depending on on who you're working for. So that's really where they can educate these these commercial operators. It's about the level of insurance they need and what it's going to be used for. And where can brokers pick up this information? Where's the best source? They, I mean, they, they can speak to to insurers. You know, we we, we know what products we have out there. Um, different insurers will provide different levels of cover. So depending on who you go to, you'll get either 
very, very extensive cover, which might be more than you need, or other places, they might be cutting it down to the very bare essential. So it's, it's then up to the broker to, to sort of pick and choose what might be best. But insurers will always be speaking to their brokers about what products it is they're offering. Uh, and we often have uh, little roadshows where we're going around explaining to these guys, like, this is what we do. This is the offering we have. This is how it compares to the market. And this is why we think this is the good product for, for, for what you need to be selling. Are there any other areas of the insurance business that could actually learn from the ways in which you are marketing drone insurance? Yeah, I, th- I think we touched upon this a little bit earlier. The, 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 this, this new technology with, with using big data to assess in real time what's going on with the risk, you know, that th- this could be used all over the place. You, you could imagine if you've, if you've got a boat and you're, uh, and you're taking it out sailing, you know, you need it insured whilst it's in the harbour. But if you had a, a pay-as-you-sail type of method where um, you can just activate this as you leave and you now are in sailing mode, uh, then you pay for just whatever you're using. Car insurance could be exactly the same. And, okay, telematics does this in some way, but more of a sort of backwards looking about how you've done in the year and how well you've driven. Actually, what might be more interesting is your car will be sitting on your driveway or in your garage. It has a certain level of insurance just in case something happens to it there. But then as soon as you get in your car, your insurance activates. And depending on what time of day you're driving, you know, where you're driving and how you're driving, that then you pay for the insurance as you go. So, Elaine, here we go. We love them. But are jobs affected negatively? We estimate there'll be 630,000 people working within the drone economy in 2030. All of us sat around this table are now working within the drone economy. The roofer that goes out and pops a drone out of his, the back of his van to inspect your roof is working within the drone economy. So by the time you, when you expand out what all those roles could look like, you could feasibly see that 630,000 is a reasonable number. They are not just about those who drones are their primary delivery method of their job, but it's also about those whose their roles are enhanced. So new jobs as well as those existing roles that are enhanced, surveying, for example, being a classic role where you use drone to enhance your existing service. Um, We think it's a 630,000 net. So um, there will be some jobs that change. There may well be some that lose lose out but in the overall scheme of things we think it's a net gain for society creation of jobs and more interesting jobs as well more creative jobs Mm. taking away some of the 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 more repetitive tasks that you see taking place and actually the interesting part is the analysis that you gather from that data I think it's important that we have these kind of really exciting ideas and visions for the future for you know things like Uber, but I think uh, and Amazon also with their prime you know Amazon Prime Air. Um, but I think we also need to be a little bit realistic in terms of what where whereabouts actually are the opportunities, um, and you know at the moment we can't fly small drones beyond visual line of sight in over a farmer's field. Um, so what we're talking about with you know autonomous passenger drones is flying people over urbanized areas beyond visual line of sight. So, you know, I, th- I think there needs to be re- realistic targeting of where the opportunities are now. Um, but with that vision of the future, um, and let's not let's not try and sort of you know run before we walk. Let's get the let's get the the sound footings in place, and then and then we can sort of uh, have that blue sky picture, um, you know, in the in the distance to work towards. Indeed. So that brings this episode to an end. My thanks to uh, Tom Chamberlain from AGCS, his colleague Tony Avery also from AGCS, 
James Dunthorne, Standards Director at RPAS UK, and finally, Elaine White, Drones Lead at PwC UK. Please do subscribe to this podcast through your podcast app. That way, you'll be sure of never missing an episode, and we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review as well. We'll be back to explore another major global trend in the next episode of Tomorrow. In the meantime, from me, Nick Ewer, it's goodbye.